This week on The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. We sometimes had to remind ourselves that our story did not begin in these hard and musty dungeons. I'm Neil Harvey. What happens when descendants of African slaves and slave owners come together? It's from slavery to stardust. What would healing look like on The Bioneers? What is it like to be in someone else's skin, if that's really possible? What if the color of the skin is different, say black or white? What might happen when the descendants of a white slave trader and of black people who were enslaved meet? What would healing look like? That is the brave and wrenching journey embraced by Thomas DeWolf, whose white ancestors were once the biggest slave traders in the United States and Belvie Rooks and Dedon Gills, who are descendants of African slaves. Join us for From Slavery to Stardust, What Would Healing Look Like? With author Thomas Norman DeWolf, producer and thought leader Belvie Rooks, and Dedon Gills, poet and former Black Panther. My name is Neil Harvey, I'll be your host. Welcome to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Like many life-changing journeys, this one began seemingly by chance. Rushing on their way to the airport, Belvie Rooks insisted to her husband, Dedon Gills, that they first stop quickly at a bookstore. Having recently returned from West Africa, she grabbed a book whose striking cover featured an iconic photograph of an enslaved man. She threw it in her bag, and they raced for their plane. Gills started to read the book, Inheriting the Trade, a northern family confronts its legacy as the largest slave-trading dynasty in U.S. history. He was stunned by its power, but just couldn't get Belvie to read something she said was, quote, about a bunch of white people who owned a bunch of black people. When he insisted on reading her a passage, she began weeping and decided to contact the author, Thomas DeWolf. All of them had taken intensely personal journeys into their past in Africa and in the United States. In their travels in Africa, all of them had been touched by the symbolism of the iconic Sankofa bird. Belvie Rooks and Thomas DeWolf spoke at a recent Bioneers conference. The Sankofa bird symbolizes the courage to look back into the past while boldly moving forward and taking that knowledge and transforming it into the wisdom needed to guide the present into a benevolent future for the entire community. Because many people ask, that's the past. Why go back there? And so we felt like in terms of African spiritual and indigenous wisdoms tradition, there was a symbol that speaks very powerfully in that tradition of why you look back. The Akan language translation of the Sankofa bird is that it is not taboo to go back and fetch what you forgot. One of the chapters of my book actually is Sankofa. And it's this image because this bird is flying forward while looking backward, recognizing that that's the only way forward is to know where you have come from, to give yourself that sense of direction. And the egg in the bird's mouth representing the birth, the future. We are the ancestors of future generations. Um, 
And so I'm related to this family that was heavily involved in the slave trade for this country. And my eight times great-grandfather, who was two or three generations before the slave traders, was given land, he and his brother, you know, out of respect for their involvement in the annihilation of Indian men, women, and children at a battle called the Great Swamp Massacre, or as they like to call it, the Great Swamp Fight. And my first cousin, six generations ago, is a man named James DeWolf. He's in the second of three generations. This family was involved in the slave trade for about 50 years, from 1769 until 1820, when it became a hanging crime in this country. James DeWolf, when he died in 1837, was the second richest man in America. And the base of that was the slave trade, but he branched out into all kinds of things and really made his fortune as a privateer in the War of 1812. He owned more ships than the United States Navy. And people would invest the way you invest in the stock market today in a slave voyage. When it worked, which was most of the time, you made a lot of money. And when it failed, you lost all your money. So it was a lucrative and chancy investment. And at the same time, I've got a third cousin from Illinois who, right about this same time in 1839, was one of the co-founders of the Anti-Slavery Society of Illinois. And in the late 1850s, he was charged in federal court with aiding in the escape of a fugitive slave. And those charges were dropped during the Civil War. And I think in most every family, you'll find heroes in heels. And the heroes aren't all that heroic, and the heels are far too human. And the complexity of this, I think, is the thing that most astounded me. Thomas DeWolf. Belvie Rooks found that her lineage wasn't as easy to trace. She was able to locate only one of her ancestors. Sally Gooden was listed in the public record as the property of a man named Taylor Polk, who lived in Arkansas. For D. Don Gills and the majority of African-American people, there's no lineage that can be traced. Rooks, a film producer, and Gills, a poet, are both also longtime human rights and environmental advocates. After several years together, they decided to get married. They went to Africa to tie the knot. And we actually ended up going and being married by an indigenous kind of shaman there. It was quite wonderful. Four days later, we decided that we wanted to go to Cape Coast because we wanted to honor. It was a happy time. And people said, why would you want to go to the slave dungeon on your honeymoon? And it just felt like we wanted to go and honor because everybody who looks like me who came to these shores came through one of those doors. It wasn't just a tourist journey. So I'm just going to read for you a portion of what I wrote in my journal at the time. As I stood looking out at the vast ocean beyond, I tried to imagine what reaching this spot, this door of no return, must have felt like for some long ago unremembered African ancestor as she stood trembling on the precipice of a terrifyingly unknown and uncertain future. As I glanced at the ocean a few feet below, the tears flowed uncontrollably. It was hard to process the fact that for over 300 years, without interruption, 
Millions of African men, women, and children had begun the long journey into slavery from this very spot. The numerous slave dungeons on the West African coast, in places like Elmina and Cape Coast, in Ghana and Gore Island and Senegal, are living monuments and stark reminders of our inhumane lapses. The names of the people passing through this door of no return have all been erased from our historical memory. The names of the mothers and the fathers, children, the sisters and the brothers, the babies, the aunts, the uncles, the potters, the weavers, the farmers, the priests. I did something which for me took a lot of courage. I went and sat in the women's slave dungeon because I felt like sometimes you do what's hard. That was hard because we had heard so many stories about the women and the one that I couldn't get out of my mind and I still can't and there's a kind of a little courtyard outside the women's dungeon and there was a stairway that went upstairs to the governor's quarters and periodically what we were told was that the governor would come out and look down and have all the women brought out and then he would select a woman. It was often a virgin, and they'd have to clean her up, and you know she would be the woman who'd have to go up the stairs. And I needed to sit in that dungeon to try and feel what it was like to be a part of that community of women who prepared this young woman for that journey. Do you know what were the songs that they sang? You could, you're in the space. You can almost really hear, and. After the governor, then all of the soldiers on the way back down had the privilege of raping her. So I had to try and imagine what was it like to be a part of a community of women that welcomed that broken soul back into the community. I couldn't bring myself to imagine what it would have been to be the person going up the stairs, but I could and felt that it was important, you know, if these women had to live this, that I could at least kind of sit with them in silence and try and honor and respect. From Africa to America and back to Africa, distant lives connected by ancestral legacies were tracing the same roots, looking backward while flying forward with an egg in their mouth, inevitably converging. When we return, Thomas DeWolf recounts his emotional visit to the same West African slave dungeon. This is From Slavery to Stardust, What Would Healing Look Like? I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Bioneers Radio is made possible in part by John Masters Organics. Feel good about looking good. Learn more at johnmasters.com. 
To explore more Bioneers radio shows and conference videos for free, visit Bioneers.org. Writer Thomas DeWolf and nine of his family members traveled to Ghana, West Africa, as part of their terrifyingly personal documentary film about their family lineage. At age 47, DeWolf had been devastated to discover he was related to the most successful slave-trading family in United States history. His distant cousin, filmmaker Katrina Brown, wanting to confront their legacy head-on, produced the documentary Traces of the Trade, a story from the Deep North. In the film, DeWolf joined his family members to revisit the sailing voyages of their Rhode Island ancestors in the late 1700s and early 1800s. The notorious Triangle trade route began in New England where ships loaded with rum sailed for West Africa. In what is now Ghana, the sailors sold the rum, took on human cargo, and returned through Cuba, where the African people were sold to work on coffee and sugar plantations, and elsewhere. Sugar was turned into molasses, loaded on the ships, and delivered back to the rum distillery in Rhode Island, completing the triangle. DeWolf's visit began at Cape Coast Castle, the same slave-trading post visited by Bellevue Rooks and Dedon Gills. Depending on whose skin you were in, it was either a castle or a dungeon. When our family was in Cape Coast, we met with Professor Kofi Anyidoho, who's a, a professor of literature at the University of Ghana at Accra, and he spent a day with us talking with us about slavery, the system of enslavement from the perspective of West African people. Professor Anyudoho said that slavery is a tragic accident in which people today are still bleeding to death. Slavery is the living wound under a patchwork of scars. The only hope of healing is to be willing to break through the scars, to finally clean the wound properly and begin healing. So we took a tour with Professor Anyudoho. The family descended from the palatial quarters of the slave traders into the hideously claustrophobic, airless dungeons below. Small trenches carved into the floor collected sewage with no drainage. What might it be like to be in someone else's skin? Thomas DeWolf read from his book. Suddenly, we're plunged into pitch-black darkness. I literally cannot see anything. The battery pack for the camera just died. And Jeff, our sound guy, says it'll take at least 10 minutes to go to the van and replace it. A male voice sighs, get out your flashlights. A female voice replies, why don't we not? Why don't we just sit here in the dark? Nothing more is said and it remains black. I feel my way to the wall and sit on the rock floor. It doesn't matter if my eyes are open or not. The view remains the same. No one speaks. My thoughts drift in the silence. I breathe in deeply, exhale slowly, and calm my anger. And I begin to put myself into another time, another body. I imagine being here 200 years ago with no lights, no comforts, only those three small holes far above connect me with the world outside, this hard room and stifling heat. I can't focus in the blackness. I can only hear and feel and smell. And what I hear and feel and smell are the worst things I've ever sensed in my life. My heart beats rapidly within my aching body, and thoughts turn to those I love. Where's my wife? My last image is the utter panic on her face as I'm beaten and torn away from her and our village. 
I tried to fight, but they overwhelmed me, struck me, shackled me. Her screams still echo in my ears. I think in turn about my three daughters and my son and my inability to communicate with any of them. I want to hold them, but I can't. To scream out, but I have no voice. They don't know what has happened, where I am, if I'm safe or in danger, alive or dead. I don't know if they're still alive. Throughout my life, I have known my village and its surroundings, and never before have I traveled far from home. Now forced to walk day after unending day to arrive at this dark dungeon, I wonder if I could ever find my way home again, even if I were to escape. Many people died along the way. I see nothing but hear groans all around. Some men weep, others scream, and I feel their anguish the same as my own. I can't move without bumping up against others. Our tears drop to the hard floor and mingle with urine and feces and blood from our wounds. Breathing comes hard in the suffocatingly hot, unbearable air. 200 men lie crammed in this room. We sweat, breathe, cry, bleed, vomit, piss, and shit together. Yet I am alone. My heart pounds. I hear others weeping quietly. And for the first moment in my life, I have an inkling of what total despair feels like. Unimaginable horror envelops me, pierces me. Tears stream down my cheeks. I also know I'm a white man in the year 2001, and I will walk out of here soon. I will see my wife and children again, and someday I'll walk hand in hand with my grandchildren on the beach back home. I'll barbecue salmon and sip wine with my friends. I can't know the real horror of this place, comprehend the totality of the loss, the despair. I feel worse, more alone than I've ever felt in my life, yet I'm only scratching the surface of the scar. I take another deep breath because there's nothing else to do. I force my mind to go blank. I don't want to think about this anymore. Where's the damn battery for the light? I need this to be over. Breathe, I tell myself, breathe. I wasn't aware that my eyes were closed until I hear the professor's voice. The battery pack has been replaced, lights are on, and the crew films. I glance from face to face at each of my cousins and sense a new depth of knowledge that did not exist 30 minutes ago. I doubt that any of us was prepared to face the exhumed, rotting corpse of a family secret buried in this place so long ago. Like Thomas DeWolf, Belvie Rooks was plunged into the pit of despair by the abomination of the slave dungeons. All she could do was cry and cry for two days, forgetting, she said, everything she knew and believed. Until, that is, her husband, Dedon Gills, asked her a profound yet disarmingly simple question. What would healing look like? In this bottomless nadir of woundedness, Rooks remembered something African elders had told her to do after visiting the dungeons. Go and wash your feet ritually. You don't want to walk with all that suffering. And so part of what came to mind was a poem by Alice Walker. It's called Torture. When they torture your mother, plant a tree. When they torture your father, plant a tree. When they torture your brother and your sister, when they assassinate your leaders and your lovers, plant a tree. So there was something about a vision of commemorating 
all of these lost souls and that Didan and I talked about by planting trees that would both help the planet as a whole, even though it came out of a very specific place of woundedness, it would help us all. It would be the lung, trees of the lungs of us all. And so that's when we came up with the vision of growing a global heart. Didon Gills. But specifically around the African slave trade where this vision grew out of, I thought, what a great opportunity to, to call in our ancestors, our nameless ancestors, into this moment in time that we live in today and ask them to literally, spiritually inhabit those trees that we plant and give their life meaning. We're their ancestors. This is a way for them to caress us, for them to touch us, for them to give us fresh air in our times at this cataclysmic time in our history when air at 390 parts per million, the carbon content in the air, one of the most important things you could do is plant a tree right now. And to plant a tree in memory of all these, these dismembered souls that's across the world, and particularly Africans who perished during that, that horrific slave trade. But I think the most fundamental thing that any of us could do is really declare peace with ourselves, declare peace with our fellow man and, and woman. <laughs> I heard you. I heard you. <laughs> declare peace with our environment. You know, I came up in a world in South Central LA in Watts. I was in gangs when I was a teenager. I fought other young men and hit them in the head with steel bars and stuff. I've been at some sort of war all my life. And maybe the type of war that you've been in might have been different from the type that I've been in. You know, you might have had a war with your body, with your mom. Or, but somehow we have to find a way to say it's time for peace. It's time to stop it. It's time for us to grow up as a species and just cut all of this out. The day Bellevue Rooks and Didon Gills were married, extreme flooding in northern Ghana displaced 400,000 people. 22 African countries are projected to be among the hardest hit by climate change. And so we're environmentalists holding that, holding the pain. That, so there's floods in Ghana. We're getting ready to go to Senegal, and we're reading about Senegal being the hottest summer on record because the Sahel is creeping south. So here we are, sitting with climate change. I think it's important to be aware of another story. And so I, um, I wrote this while I was reflecting on our journey there. Part of what kept us centered throughout this beautiful, tumultuous, and sometimes painful journey was that we sometimes had to remind ourselves that our story did not begin in these hard and musty dungeons, but that our journey started billions of years ago in the darkness of timeless space. And that like the particles of ancient stardust that pulsates through our body, we have paused but a moment in slavery's path. And despite all odds, predictions and expectations, we as descendants of the tribe of the Middle Passage with all of its pain and suffering, continue to travel the sacred journey, dreaming of new possibilities and new ways of becoming together. I realized the suffering and the slave trade was only part of our story. 
One night, while looking up at the magnificent pitch black equatorial African sky, in which the stars seemed surprisingly close, their brightness invited me to remember the greatest story of our common journey in our common ancestry. D. Don Gills, Bellevue Rooks, and Thomas DeWolf. After making the film, Thomas DeWolf wrote his book, Inheriting the Trade. Bellevue Rooks and Dedon Gills, in honor of their people's disappeared family tree, founded the nonprofit organization Growing a Global Heart to help plant a million trees along the transatlantic slave route. Together, the three speak publicly about their remarkable journey to discover what healing looks like. From slavery to stardust, what would healing look like? Many more Bioneers radio programs and conference videos are available online for free at Bioneers.org, where you can also find out how to attend the annual Bioneers conference and local Bioneers satellite conferences near you. Bioneers voices are heard more widely with your support. Join by visiting Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Katherine Stifter and Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production management, Aaron Leventman and Chuck Castleberry. Station relations by Creative PR. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Original recordings provided by Focus Audiovisual. Interview recording engineer, Jeff Westman. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Rykodisc label. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at soundstrue.com. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 1011. This program was made possible in part by Organic Valley Family of Farms, organic and family-owned since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.coop. Also by Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues, as well as by the generous support of listeners like you.